Hello everyone and welcome to this afternoon's session on corporate capture of health. I'm Sunil Bhopal, I'm a junior doctor and academic researcher from Newcastle. So it's an absolute pleasure to be here today uh, introducing three fine speakers and to really crucially get going on a debate and discussion about what we are going to do as MEDACT and that's the part that I'm really looking forward to and I hope that you are too. Now we have three speakers each speaking for 20 minutes and we will then have about half an hour for discussion and we'll, t we'll talk about that when we come to it. So I think without further ado we'll move on to our first speaker who is Dr Mirren Epstein who is uh, currently a reader in medical ethics at Barts and the London School of Medicine. So welcome to Mirren Epstein. Thank you, Samir. I would like to tell you um, what I'm being paid for in this school. Um, I'm being paid to teach my medical students, 1,800 uh, undergraduate students here, to teach them to become ethical doctors. To be more specific, I'm asked to teach them to abide by the code of medical ethics of the GMC, which is called Good Medical Practice. Listen to the title, Good Medical Practice. What does it mean? What does it imply for those who abide by it? It implies that they are good. It implies that the game that complies by the ethic uh, is good. But what I do is not really according to the contract. I teach them exactly the opposite. I teach them that medical ethics, uh, like any other ethic, for example, like the ethic of the mafia, saying no women and children, or the Judeo-Christian ethic of slavery that speaks of the Sabbath as one day of rest per week, or the ethic of female circumcision that speaks of the purity of the woman and her acceptance into marital and social life, adult life in certain countries and communities, that medical ethics is as good as the game it sanctions. That is, in a nutshell, the message which I would like to um, get across here. I must apologize, though, because um, it usually takes me five years to get it across. I mean, uh, I only have 20 minutes now, less two minutes. I'll try to uh, make uh, the following case, that medical ethics is the historical product of a medicine that is dominated by the capital. And when I say the capital, I don't mean money, I don't mean... I mean this social stakeholder. I'm not talking about individuals, but about a certain interest. This stakeholder that drives the generation of, possesses, and reaps the benefit from capital that is money whose purpose is making more money. Medical ethics is the historical product of a medicine that is dominated by the capital, and naturally it works for it. As far as the particular interests of doctors is concerned, what it does, it lubricates the fall of the doctor from the branch which the capital is now cutting on the head of the patient. It is a seemingly pro-patient ethic, however essentially 
it is a pro-capital ethic and very little else. To make the case, I would like to leave medical ethics for a second and ask a historical question about the evolution of ethics in general. How does an ethic develop? So, first of all, let's take a scenario where we as a group of people have no interest, no common interest and no conflicting interest at all. For example, think about us breathing, each one of us in a different pace. I breathe 12 times a minute, you breathe 16 times, no common interest, no conflicts of interest. Therefore, no order, therefore, no need of an ethic, and there is currently no ethic of breathing, as far as I know. Let us now move on to another scenario, where there are common interests only. For example, people who are trying to rescue a ship on which they are staying, which is drowning. It has a hole, they need to divide labor amongst themselves and one, so that one will do this, the other one will do that, and so on. Obviously, it requires some order and some regulations. However, these regulations will not obtain a moral form. In other words, they will not seem to the agents, to the collective, they will not seem to the collective as principles, as ends in themselves. They will be means to ends, and they will be changed whenever it is necessary. Um, a good example of this situation is the chess game. You wouldn't, I mean, the chess game is regulated, there is some order, there are common interests only to play the game, also conflicting interests, I mean, you want to win, the other one wants to win too, and so on, but this is not a major part here. The thing is that the rule that speaks of the knight and how it should move is not an ethical rule. In other words, it does not purport to be moral. It does not involve shame if you breach it. It does not involve any sanction that involves shame or any kind of punishment. Now let's move on to the next scenario where we have conflicts of interest only. Let's say people from Europe coming to West Africa, capturing people there and taking them to the New World or to Europe to become slaves. Conflicts of interest only. At some point there must be some order there and the order must be regulated by some rules. But these rules at the beginning will not acquire any ethical form, any moral form. They will not seem as principles but as means to ends. Indeed, most slaves will abide by these rules of fear of the consequences, of fear of the punishment when breaching them. However, if the master goes to sleep or goes on a holiday, they will not feel any shame for trying to escape. Not at all. However, after some time, the situation may be normalized so that the second generation of slaves, the third generation of slaves, and the fourth generation gradually come to realize that the condition in which they are is normal. And the same applies to the masters. The situation is normal. I don't 
want to bring examples here about the royalty in this country. Well, I have. I mean, <laughs> sorry. It started, it started in a certain way, and then it has normalized, as Edmund Burke, the famous historian, used to say, longevity is legitimacy. And when things become normal, the best thing for the order to be established in that society is by some kind of a compromise between the masters and the slaves. And how will this compromise be achieved historically, gradually? It will be achieved or shaped according to the existing relations of power. So, for example, since it is a compromise, they will agree about two things. First of all, both parties, and when we talk about ethics, at least when I talk about ethics, I'm talking about a collective conscience. Medical ethics, in this sense, is the collective conscience of our profession as it is expressed in the current regulatory system applying in med to medicine. But they agree about two things. First of all, they agree about our, their common interests. Common interests that are shaped by power, nothing else. So, the slave wants seven days of rest per week. The master thinks that one day per week is best because less than one day would be, you know, disastrous economically. It will result ultimately in the collapse of the slave. It's not cost effective. So ultimately they agree about what power dictates and this is one day of rest. And the same goes for the ethic of female circumcision. They agree ultimately, the women and the men, they agree ultimately that the, women, the woman will be accepted as a result of the procedure into her society, which is in her best interest. Of course, at a heavy price, but that's not the thing here. They agree about their common interests. However, they agree about something else too. They agree about what will not be put in the ethic. By the way, both parties agree. For example, the slave agrees very much that slavery as relationship of exploitation should not be part of the ethic. What kind of an ethic is it if it allows exploitation? Okay? Moreover, what kind of a compromise have I, the slave, entered into Yes, if it actually implies slavery? The master says the same. First of all, why should we put the name of the game into the compromise, into the rules of the game. We don't want to expose these rules. Second, and no less important, the master is not a bad man. Ask the people in the city here, what is the name of the game they are doing, they are playing? They will not tell you it's a, it's, it's a name called Monopoly, which favors those who, you know, succeed in occupying a position that allows them to appropriate the wealth produced by others. They will tell you, you know, just they are lazy and, you know, it's a game, you know, we are all in the same game, uh, big society, the same game. Uh, we are, you know, just cleverer, smarter, whatever, and the others are lazy, and that's pretty much it. They need to sleep well, too. The same applies to medical ethics. 
And in the next 10 minutes, I will try to give you examples of how this works. But first of all, just to conclude what I've said so far. An ethic, and this is a universal observation on all ethics, an ethic is a reflection of common interests that were shaped actually by the interest of the hegemonic power, the dominant power in society. What we get, therefore, is a universal gap between the ethic and the practice. The ethic describes, labels, the compliant practice, I'm not talking about the non-compliant practice, the compliant practice as a win-win game. If you, the doctor, obtain informed consent from the patient and the patient gives informed consent, this is a win-win game in the best interest of both the doctor and the patient and the other agents involved in this game. However, the compliant game, and this is where the gap is, the compliant game is more than just a win-win game. It is exactly what slavery, the ethic of slavery, or slavery, slavery, normal slavery relations, yes, are a win-win game for the participants in that game. It is a master game, a zero some master game that, it domi that is dominated by one party. That party, I think it's not easy to show, but it is possible. One only needs to trace the fingerprints of it on the ethic in order to understand which party it is. The same party that controls medicine, the capital, is the party that shapes largely, not exclusively, largely. Remember, it is a collective conscience. It's the collective conscience of the slaves and the masters. It needs to have the fingerprints of both of them. However, at the same time, it reflects the power relation underlying this game. What it does is conceal the game. And that is what it does. It ultimately results in a code that calls itself good practice that says, if the game abides by my rules, the game is good. And what I would like to suggest is exactly the opposite. It's not the ethic that should be the criterion for the morality of the ethic. Not in medicine, not anywhere. It's the practice that should be the criterion for the morality of the ethic that sanctions it. Is this clear? I'm asking you. I know it defeats all intuition. Would you mind just repeating that? Yeah, I will repeat it. Normally, we are taught, intuitively, we feel that the ethic, the ethic that we have, our collective conscience, should be the criterion of the morality of the practice. Okay? Instead, I suggest that it is the practice, the game, that should be the criterion of the morality of the ethic that sanctions it. Please, let me give some examples. Okay? Let's start with informed consent. Informed consent is nothing but the part of the patient in a contract. Okay? That's it. Why a contract? Because what does a contract do? A contract privatizes responsibility. Okay? That's what a contract does. You enter into a certain agreement and ultimately you privatize responsibility. Usually when we teach and talk about 
informed consent in medicine, we rarely speak about the privatization of responsibility. We speak about respect for autonomy, about authority given to the patient, etc., etc. Uh, we speak about the patient's interests and so on. But the truth is that informed consent entails, involves also a burden. And that burden is private responsibility. Now, think about the patient. When a patient accepts private responsibility for his or her choices, what does he feel about the amount of autonomy that was involved in making his or her choice? They feel, they are bound to feel, that they were fully, perfectly autonomous. This is what private responsibility presupposes. However, the tests of informed consent, the criteria of eligibility to give consent, do not ensure, do not guarantee full uh, full autonomy and therefore do not necessarily give the real justification for private responsibility. The result is that people who should not be privately responsible for their choices are actually given such responsibility. Not all of them, not always, but this is the general point. Informed consent is a legal fiction. Now, think about the market. The market is based the capitalist market is based on contracts. Contract is its emblematic feature, okay? Now, the ethic of these contracts must therefore regard the people as autonomous. It must regard most people as fully autonomous and ultimately privately responsible for their purchasing choices, okay? However, at the same time, the market cannot allow only fully autonomous people to enter contracts and take private responsibility. Had this been the case, Brent Cross Center and other shopping centers around the city would shut down immediately, okay? If only fully autonomous people could purchase. This is one example. The other example is related is the requirement to disclose conflicts of interest. Okay? What does it presuppose, the, this requirement? It presupposes that A, conflicts of interest exist in medicine. B, it's not bad for conflicts of interest to exist in medicine. It's okay, as long as you disclose them. And it also presupposes that if you disclose the conflicts of interest, then this will be a sufficient measure, or, or a measure sufficient to ensure an autonomous decision on behalf of the customer. Let's go to the hmm? okay. Let's go to the the ethic of allocation of scarce resources. It departs from the premise of scarcity of resources that resources are limited. Okay, the resources are limited. I know where the money is. The money has gone to bail out the banks. Okay. There is no shortage in resources, and I'm not suggesting even that there is such a need. The last one, perhaps, and just one out of dozens of other examples. Respect for the right to die with dignity. Who doesn't want to die with dignity? Everybody wants to die with dignity. But you also want to live with dignity, don't you? Okay, remember one thing, that the right to die with dignity in a society that robs people of a meaningful right to live with dignity receives a completely different meaning 
than in a society where it gives them both. There is nothing wrong with informed consent, nothing wrong with allocation of resources if they are scarce, nothing wrong with the right to live with dignity. But in the current context, all these uh, uh, regulations actually work very well to allow the doctors to fall with a branch on the heads of their patients. Thank you.